All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your word again tonight, we're thankful for it. We're thankful that you you have given us uh, this book, which is the revelation of your son. Thankful for your son. We can't begin to understand where we'd be without you coming to us, meeting us in our sin and changing our lives, placing your spirit within us. We're thankful for a gracious and merciful God. Lord, as we look into your word tonight, we ask that once again you would be faithful to your teachers, those who proclaim your word, that you would give me the words to say. Help me speak only what's true, nothing that is conjecture in my opinion, but your truth only would go forth into the hearts of these people, Lord. Bless this service, and not only here, but also those gathering on Wednesday nights and throughout the week, throughout this country, that your truth will go forward. It will be proclaimed and it doesn't bring back void because it pierces through the hearts of men and is able to change souls and lives. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. But before you turn there, I want to begin in Luke 24 is going to give us a little bit of a, a backdrop leading into Acts chapter 13. So turn to Luke chapter 24, the last chapter in Luke. This is post-resurrection, and we're going to read starting in verse 13. This is the road to Emmaus. Obviously, Christ has resurrected. Rumors and, and news of His resurrection are spreading abroad. And we meet these two men, one of, one of which we're told his name is Cleopas, and his friend is there traveling to Emmaus, and the Lord meets them there, and I want to read what he has to say here. So beginning in verse 13, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, and he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But the word among some women amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had seen, had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and to enter into his glory? From beginning, with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning him in all the scriptures. That's really our jumping off text to uh, our text in Acts chapter 13. The central point being that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the purpose and the point of the book from the Old Testament, expanding all the way to the New and the prophecies and revelation. Not just the scriptures, but history itself is all about Christ. It's his story. He is the fulfillment of all that has happened and that is to come. It's impossible to approach this book honestly and treat it as just a manual that has some good things to say and not recognize it for what it is, the revelation of Jesus Christ, his story. The scriptures reveal him as the prophesied Messiah. They reveal him as prophet. They reveal him as priest, reveal him as king, reveal him as Lord, reveal him as savior, reveal him as judge, reveal him as a servant, and reveal him as God possessing all the attributes of the sovereign thrice holy creator from Old Testament to New in the completed canon. Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 39, he said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These, the scriptures, are they that testify of me. Jesus was there from the beginning. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And he verifies this when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And of course, they wanted to crucify him for that because he made himself equal with God because he was God. And John chapter 1 confirms that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being the Logos, the speaking agency of God. And that's what Jesus confirms to us here on the road to Emmaus when he teaches Cleopas and his friend everything about him in the Old Testament scriptures. And as the story unfolds past the point of what we just read, later as Jesus leaves them, the two men are going over the events of the day and, and the experience they just had with Jesus. And they say to themselves, when he was telling us, did we not burn in our hearts when he was expressing all this to us? It must have been, that's one message that I wish I would have been able to hear here, and Lord willing, look forward to one day actually hearing that, because uh, to have the Lord himself teach about him in the scriptures would be uh, an incredible experience. Just to go back all the way to beginning to confirm some of this, uh, Genesis 1.1, we know that in the beginnings God created the heaven and the earth. Paul says in uh, Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been, been created through him and for him. Do you want to know what your purpose is in life? Well, first you have to ask yourself, are you a created thing? If the answer is yes, then it's for him. You are for his purpose and his purpose alone. All things were created through him and for him, including all the events of history and the future events that will unfold. He will fulfill and be the preeminent reason for all of them. 
Uh, it's through Christ that the nations of the earth will be blessed, as promised to Abraham. Uh, it's by Christ that the ruling scepter will never depart from the tribe of Judah. It's by Christ that the Davidic covenant promised to David will be established forever. It's by Christ that the law, the sacrifices, the Passover have all their fulfillments. It's by Christ that the promise, prophet that is to come, the one like Moses, is to be heard. How that will be fulfilled it is of Christ, of whom all the prophets speak with one unison voice, the deliverer that will come to Israel and establish his kingdom forever. All of the scriptures testify to who Christ is. So with that in mind, let's go to uh, Acts chapter 13. This is uh, Paul's first missionary journey. And just to set the stage a little bit, the church at Antioch, uh, has Antioch in Syria, uh, north of Jerusalem, has been established. It's a thriving church, and the Holy Spirit comes to the church and says, set aside Paul and Barnabas to go forth and to preach this gospel and to lead them uh, to the nations. And they travel from Antioch uh, west to the island of Cyprus. And from one end, the eastern end, to the western end of Cyprus, they travel across the whole island. And they're in Paphos. And from there, they travel north to Perga, which is in Asia, southern Asia. And from there, they travel from Perga uh, north to Antioch in Pisaida. Now, that's they left Antioch. And they're arriving at Antioch. It's a different Antioch. The Antioch in Syria and this other Antioch, which is in the province of Galatia, uh, which is in uh, what's modern-day Turkey, uh, southwestern Turkey, I believe. And this was a, a difficult journey. John Luke, who was with them, actually doesn't go with them all the way up to Antioch in Pisaida. Because of the difficult journey, he goes back to Jerusalem. They would have had to travel upwards uh, Antioch and Pesada was a city on a hill, high altitude, so it would have been uh, certainly a very difficult journey uh, on foot. So let's pick it up there, uh, and we'll start at verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphras and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going from Perga, they arrived in Pisaidon, Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So here we see they arrive to the new city, they're bringing the gospel message, and they go right to the synagogue. Remember that the gospel was to go to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And we're going to see that played out here in Acts. They go directly to the synagogue to preach to the Jew. And then at the end of the chapter, we're going to see that they go to the Gentile after they're rejected. And that situation plays out throughout uh, the book of Acts. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent for them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now the... Uh, the law and the prophets, the two portions of Scripture, were read every Sabbath day. Uh, there was a portion of Scripture from the Pentateuch and a portion from the prophets. They were read in rotation every Sabbath day. 
so that if you attended every Sabbath day, you would, without it, through a year, you'd have read the whole scripture over and over again. So another interesting point is the uh, officials in the synagogue went to Paul and uh, asked him for a word of what they say, a word of exhortation for the people. Certainly Paul's reputation uh, as a rabbi, as someone who studied uh, under the renowned rabbi Gamaliel, would have preceded him, so they would have known about him, and certainly would want a word from him on what was just read. But it's interesting that they ask for um, a word of exhortation here for the people. So they want a message that the people can take with them, but something of comfort and something that they can take with them that, that they can feel good about. But the word that's used here for exhortation is more than just a kind of a feel-good, fluff type of word. It's actually, uh, the, the Greek word is paraklesis, and it's a cognate with the word parakletos, which means legal advocate, and thus it has legal overtones. So what they are in actual what they're actually asking for is a trustworthy factual statement that will encourage the people. They're looking more more than just fluff. They're looking for a true defendable word of encouragement. And I submit to you that's exactly what Paul's going to lay out for them in his case for Christ to them is a true defensible uh, apologetic for who Christ is and it certainly brings great comfort. So after the reading of the law and the prophets, and the synagogue officials sent for them, saying, Brethren, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, saying, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Again, he's addressing a particular group. He's addressing the Jews here, the Israelites here in the synagogue. Uh, as we said, the, the gospel must go first to the Jew. And he's preaching to people who fear God, who have a zeal for God. And he continues, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he led them out from it. So he immediately connects with their history, going right back to uh, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the birth of Israel as a nation in Egypt from slavery, from there leading out of bondage uh, to the promised land. So he's identifying to the root of his audience what they would know, what they were, how they identified themselves with their history. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Cana, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. So 400 uh, years in, the, uh, in Egypt, from there 40 years in the wilderness, and then uh, 10 years uh, with Joshua before they go into the promised land. And from there... After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. 
And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he had also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So he brought Israel out. He gives them kings. And he brings them up to David. Certainly the figurehead of Israel that all, that all the people of Israel would have uh, looked to. They knew the Messiah was to come from David. And he's building that case, pointing to Christ, laying out that Davidic line. And as uh, he promised in, in Psalm 132, verse 11, he says, The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. It's a faithful promise. It will come to fruition. Of the fruit of your body, I will set up your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, I will teach them. Their sons also shall sit upon your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And that's what they would have been looking forward to, that Messiah from the Davidic line who was to come and to set up David's kingdom to reign forever. And here Paul is telling them what they've missed. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be the king concerning whom he also testified that he and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart and my own will. From the descendant of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. There's his point. He leaves it at that. Brought to them a savior, Jesus. That's who he's leading to. He's leading to Christ. Christ is the promised Messiah. And now in verse 24, he's going to jump, he's going to fast forward to the New Testament. And he says, after this, John also proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. John the Baptist, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, pointing to Christ, making straight the way of the Lord, calling for a baptism of repentance to the Jews who thought they were clean, they thought they were cleansed. But yet when Christ comes, John the Baptist calls for repentance. You're not as holy as what you think. Your sin is still before you. Your sin is still with you. The sacrifices that you're doing are not ending anything. So he points to Christ, John the Baptist. And after John had proclaimed before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. John was not the Messiah, and he stressed that repeatedly, but he was the man to point to the Messiah the one whose sandals he was not worthy to unloose. Jesus tells us that among those born of women, there were raised none greater than John the Baptist. John was considered great because he was so humble and because he pointed to Christ. But if we understand the degree in which he humbled it, then we comp 
contrast that with Christ, the humility that Christ displayed in his obedience to the death on the cross, we can see how Christ will be exalted to a far greater degree than even John the Baptist, who Jesus said there was none greater born of women. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And now he's going to kind of reestablish his main point here in verse 26. He says, Brethren, sons of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of salvation has been sent. He's saying, John the Baptist gave you that sure, sure word. He was correct on who he was pointing to. He was pointing to Christ. And that's the same message we're bringing to your doorstep here in the synagogue today. Heed what John the Baptist has said. So he's laid out his foundation and he readdresses his audience and says to the Jews, which include Paul and Barnabas, and to the Jews that he's speaking to, that this message has been prioritized first. To them, the gospel is given. To them, it is given um, that it would go and expand to the whole world, ultimately. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. That's a sovereign verse. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, which they had just done just a, a few minutes before, and they did not recognize the prophets nor the Christ, but they fulfilled these prophecies by condemning him. The Jewish leaders were hard-headed and blinded. They did not recognize the words of the prophets that had come to them. They didn't recognize Christ as the Messiah either. And of course they didn't recognize the Messiah if they didn't recognize the prophets because the prophets were speaking and pointing to the Messiah. So if you don't recognize the Christ, you're not going to understand what the prophets are saying because they're saying the same message. And they missed it. Because, as we are going to find out, they were, they were blinded. And then he continues that they fulfilled these scriptures, the very ones that they were reading, that they thought they under, understood by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. So they have a veil of blindness around them. They denied the guiltless Messiah, and yet they asked for Barabbas, who was guilty. So they revealed their hypocrisy in shunning the, the guiltless and asking for the guilty. And of course, they had always done this. They had always tried to deceive and trick uh, Christ, tripping him up in his words, getting together and trying to find out how can we trip him up? How can we find guilt in him? How can we do things like ask him, shall we give to Caesar that which is Caesar's or, or should we pay this tax? And Jesus says that you should give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Or 
kind of wild questions in uh, uh, the situation where there were seven brothers that all shared one wife. And who is the, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? You know, I could just see them getting together on that one. I, I got a good one here. You know, like, well, what if we do a situation where there's seven brothers and one wife? How's he going to answer that? But, but yet uh, he does have the answer. They couldn't trip him up. They couldn't confound him in his words. And they couldn't find him guilt, guilty. And Pilate even said that, what evil has this man done? I have found no guilt in him. But yet they demanded his death. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. They had carried out all that was written concerning him. That's another just amazing statement of God's sovereignty. That's like just layers of sovereignty on that. He was prophesied. They had the prophecies. They read the prophecies. Yet trying not to fulfill them, they fulfilled them. It's, it just goes to show that if God determines a plan, He can show you the blueprint and you can try to stop it, but you're not going to thwart His will. His will will come to fruition because... He establishes every single thing. He brings it to pass whatever He desires, and everyone will fall in accordance with that desire. Amen. But I want to look at a few references here, because he, he says specifically that they are fulfilling uh, these prophecies that were, uh, were, were written. They carried them out, uh, those concerning Him. And just a few things here. Psalm chapter 69 says, Those who hated me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. And that's really what we just you know, read in the previous verse in verse 28. They found no guilt in him, but they desired to put him to death. And Jesus says in uh, John 15 that they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hate me without a cause. Prophesied in the Old Testament... Fulfilled in the new, just as uh, God had laid it out. And yet there it was, and they missed it. Psalm 109, verse 25. I also have become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their head. Matthew 27, 39. And those passing by hurled abuse at him, wagging their heads. From the smallest detail, just to the tilt of a head, prophesied, fulfilled. Psalm chapter 22, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John chapter 19, 23 and 24, when they, laid, when they had crucified Christ, took His outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So, so they said to another, let us not tear it apart, but cast lots for it. Prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New, just as was predicted. Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-four. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. 
all the way down to what Christ was given to drink. Got a few more here, and these are these are just a few. There's there's so many others that we can go and look to. The Old Testament is riddled to prophecies of Christ and Christophanies and lots of other fulfillments that we, well, like he was probably sharing with these men on the road to Emmaus. Isaiah fifty three verse seven. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Didn't open his mouth as it was said that he wouldn't. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And he was with a rich man in his death. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-seven. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus, who went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen, clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, just as was predicted. He was with a rich man in his death. So that's just a few of the ways in which they fulfilled that which was written concerning him when they took him from the cross and laid him in, in the tomb. And then Paul continues, he says, but God raised him from the dead. That's one of those awesome but God verses where everything hinges and changes from a 180 degree, from the tomb to being raised but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to his people. The very ones who are now his witnesses to his people. He appeared to a specific group. He appeared to his disciples. He appeared to more than five, uh, 500 as well as Paul a select determined group who was given the task to spread the gospel from there. And in his sovereignty, certainly he could have revealed himself to the whole world if he desired at that point, but that was not his desire. He determined to reveal himself to a specific group, just as he has always done, just as he did with speaking parables. He determined that not everyone was to understand and believe, so he spoke in parables. In this case, not everyone was given to understand and believe. And so he revealed him to a specific select group. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. The good news that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through their seed, singular, Christ the seed, Christ the seed, through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's saying, we've seen that. We've seen Christ. He is that seed. He is the one that you need to heed all the way back into the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise that was made to them, 
That's who he's talking about, that seed. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the psalm. You are my son today. Have I begotten you? And this is a, a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And it shows Christ raised and exalted from the dead as the only begotten son. Paul is continuing to underscore how Christ fulfilled the scriptures from the Psalms. The only begotten Son. There's none other. It's only Christ. There's no other Messiah. He's the one to look to, hear Him. He's been, he's been right here. We witnessed Him, and we're telling Him about you today, the one that you've been looking for. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus, as it was also written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today have I begotten you. As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. And that's a quote from Isaiah 53. And he continues, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own people, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Christ could not undergo decay as David. And Paul's point here is to show the superiority of Christ to David. He references the scripture. Actually, it's, it's really twofold. The superiority that, he, uh, that the resurrection proved the surety also of God's promise, that it was not a promise that was able to be thwarted even with death. The promise still stood because death was defeated. And also the demonstration of holiness that the perfect Christ was not able to see decay. Death and decay could never approach something so holy as our Savior. Therefore, and this, this verse 38 and then 39 is kind of his summary statement and his main point that he wants his audience to take away. Therefore, in light of all that, in light of everything we just said about your history, about the prophets, about the promise to David uh, of the Davidic covenant, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, John the Baptist, the forerunner, in light of all that and the resurrection itself, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That ought to be just an incredible statement of relief to the audience He's speaking to. Because they have not felt any relief from their sins. They're always having to do their sacrifices, remember? And really, when we talked earlier about the exhortation, the, the sure word of comfort... That's what he's giving right here. That's the direct application of that 
word of exhortation. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And the, the word proclaimed here is not just a word conveying told to or just told, it's championed, it's lauded. It's a word that is put forth that you would want to shout from the rooftops because of the depth of its truth. And the word there, forgiveness, is not just a looking aside or a brushing under the table, willingness to not look at that sin. It's a removal of, it's a complete pardon of the sin. It's not just a choosing to ignore it. It's an actual removal of its. Christ did not come to excuse sin. He came to vanquish it. And that should be such a wonderful word to these people who their sin is one of the main things in their life that they're always aware of. They're always aware that they're sinful because of the sacrifice they have to perpetually do that never um, seems to accomplish anything because it can't accomplish anything. So he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The law of Moses could not help you. It couldn't give you freedom. It couldn't justify you. Freed from the curse of the law. So if you're in Christ... You have that freedom. You have that freedom from your sin, your freedom freedom from guilt, freedom from your impending condemnation and judgment. And you're justified, made righteous. That's wonderful news. That's the type of news that needs to be proclaimed. And then he says in verse 40, Therefore, take heed. So he serves a warning after giving them this wonderful news of, of the, the freedom that's in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and that they can be free from the, uh, the curse of the law that can't help you, the warning, take heed, so that the things spoken of the prophets may not come upon you. Because he knows that type of freedom is a freedom that those who wish to thwart the will of God don't want you to hear. They don't want you to have that type of freedom. They want you to believe that you're in continual bondage and there's nothing you can do and that you'll just remain wallowing in your sin. But this was spoken, and he's quoting uh, Habakkuk here in verse 41. Therefore take heed so that the things spoken of the prophet may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days a work that you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy right before them. He's telling them exactly this. And the prophecy is saying you won't believe it. And it's true, they don't. But as sad as that is, we know that's not the end of the story. And we know that their hardening, the blindness that came to them, was for our benefit as Gentiles. 
and it stretches the imagination to try to understand God's will in that in hardening his people for a particular period of time for the benefit of another people that are not his people and we're not seeking him. But yet he's sovereign in his will and he does it because it's going to bring him the most glory. And that's what he's determined to do. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. So they wanted to hear this the next week. We want some more of that. That sounds liberating compared to what we're hearing every, every week of the law and the prophets. And, and we understand and realize that we can't achieve this on our own. We, we haven't obtained righteousness. Our sin is ever before us, like David says. And so they desired to hear this again. And when the meeting of the synagogue, synagogue was broken up, Many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, as they always have been, as the Jewish leaders always have been, jealous of Christ. They were fearful that they would lose their status, their reputation. They loved that more than anything. They wanted their position as mediator between God and man, or so they valued themselves. They thought the people needed them. And if this Christ, if this Messiah was who he said he was, it rendered their position pretty meaningless. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they, filled, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. As we said, goes out to the Jew first. The gospel goes to the Jew first. Since you repudiate it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And we'll see, that's what they do. They go to the Gentiles, and he, he uh, quotes here from Isaiah in chapter 47, and he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed with you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And we'll see the Verse 48 here, the Gentiles rejoice and are glorifying God over that fact. Just as we should be rejoicing and glorifying God over that fact as well. That because of his hardening to his own people for a period, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That is the bulk of the passage that I want to cover here in Acts, but I don't want to leave it just as that, just there, because... Paul addresses this subject about the Jews and the Gentiles quite a bit more. And in the book of Romans, he has a lot to say about this and a lot to say about what we said earlier. If you remember, in the book of Romans, he addresses the subject of justification by faith apart from works of the law, which we just discussed here right now. But then the question comes up in the midst of all that, what about, the, what about Israel? If that's true, justification by faith apart from the works of the law, what about these who have been trying to keep the law, 
their whole life, whose ancestors have been trying to do, do that and are rejecting the Messiah. And there's lots of people that would have you believe that that means they're done away with. And that now the church is Israel. And all those promises for Israel in the Old Testament are now somehow fulfilled in the church. And they'd have you believe that. But I want to close with this part and just hopefully that this will shed a little bit of light on what Paul actually says about that. So we said Paul addresses the question of Israel in Romans. Turn to chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, the very beginning. It's where the onset is of him starting to address the question of Israel and how it relates to everything he's just laid out in the previous chapters in Romans, the whole question of justification. And he's going to address that from chapter 9, and he's going to end at the end of Romans 11. So this is how he starts off. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He sounds heartbroken over them. And I don't think that's hyperbole. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he said that. That is the degree in which he truly empathizes for Israel, that he would wish that he was separated from Christ. That doesn't sound like an individual who is thinking that uh, Israel's just done, done away with and that was all Old Testament and, and now we're in the New Covenant and um, Israel is essentially meaningless. Uh, um, maybe Israel is fulfilled somehow uh, within the church. That doesn't sound like that at all. Now, I want to look at the end of his address about Israel in Romans chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11. And notice the distinct difference in his emotion and in what he says here uh, in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. What happened between there? What changed? Why is he now expressing his emotion with great riches? And his soul is just crying out at the majestic plan of God's salvation. What changed? He's talking about the same subject. It never changed. It was still Israel the whole way through. And if you just read the text for what it says, we'll understand that God is not done with Israel. We understand that they've been hardened for a period. But as he says, did they stumble that they should fall? May it never be. God forbid. They were, there was a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, a deliverer will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. Why? Because the gifts and calling of God are without what? 
That's right. He can't change. He made his promise. He's faithful. He's a God who stands by his word. And his ways are beyond our ways in trying to understand his plan for salvation, how he would be willing to set, to harden his own people for a period, to extend mercy to a people that were not his people, who were not seeking him and didn't fear him. But yet he did so that he could have glory through every kindred, every nation, every tongue, every tribe. And then he'll redeem all of Israel. I don't know how to make sense of that or, or, or sum it up, but I feel like the way Paul concludes in the end of chapter 11 is the best way. The depth of his riches and the, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable are his ways and how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways unfathomable. Who's known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? That's not the way we would plan salvation, but it's the way God did. And it's going to get him the most possible glory. And he'll always do what brings him the most possible glory. All right. Well, let's pray and then we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the message that Paul delivered to those at Antioch, that Christ is who he said he is, the Redeemer of Israel, the one in whom is forgiveness of sins, the one in whom the law is satisfied, so that we don't have to endeavor to try to accomplish on our own because he has already accomplished, and we can't add to that. We don't understand your plan of salvation. It's detailed and marvelous. And we just, it stretches the bounds of our imagination to understand how you work. And we just look forward to experiencing your full glory played out throughout history. When all of those will be gathered around the throne, every kindred, every nation, every tongue, every tribe, as well as your people, Israel, Lord that you have them secured as well. And we thank you that you are a faithful God because you are faithful indeed, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name.